Today's Becquerel Podcast is sponsored by Zoetis, makers of Vanguard L4 Vaccine. Hi, Becquerel here today with Dr. Sharon Grazel, who's a veterinarian, researcher, and public health professional. Dr. Grazel, thank you so much for being on today's Becquerel Podcast. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So today, what I wanted to talk to you about is leptospirosis. But before we do that, I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background to your unique veterinary career and why you're the perfect person to talk about this and the zoonotic risks that we worry about with leptospirosis. Okay. So I'm a veterinarian. I've had over 20 years of practice as a companion animal practitioner in general practice. And I also have a master's of public health. And with that, my interest specifically is in in infectious and zoonotic diseases. I've done research on leptospirosis as well as other infectious diseases. And so I've combined my interest in practice with my knowledge of infectious diseases. And hopefully that will help inform some of the information that I give today. Wonderful. Thank you. So I think the best place to start with leptospirosis is, first of all, do you think veterinarians are underdiagnosing it or overdiagnosing it. I will say I graduated 20 years ago and I was always taught icterus plus renal disease equals lepto. And it seems like that may actually be changing. Yes, I actually think that leptospirosis is underdiagnosed for a variety of reasons. One of them is that disease is nonspecific in signs. And also, it can be a range of severity. So it can be very mild or it can be severe. It can be the icterus with renal signs, but it may not be that at all. It may be just lethargy or anorexia. So I actually think it's really interesting because when I looked at the ACVM consensus statement on lepto, when you look at some of the clinical signs of inappetence, lethargy, vomiting, fever, that's pretty much 100% of the presenting complaint that I see in the emergency room. Exactly. So this is so nonspecific that it should be on a differential list for pretty much any dog that shows up and has any of the signs that you just mentioned. They really can just be the dog that maybe you think had some dietary indiscretion or um, not sure what's going on with that dog, but they're having lethargy. They may not be eating well. They might have had some diarrhea, but they may not have had diarrhea at all. And seeing signs of polyuria, polydipsia is actually less common. So it really is up to the practitioner to keep this in the back of their mind as a a potential diagnosis for almost any dog with those signs. So what do you think are the most common clinical signs of leptospirosis that may be missed by veterinarians? Well, the ones that maybe will give a little extra hint if they're present and they're not always present, so that makes it tricky. There may be some abdominal pain, some muscle pain. Those are also things that can show up, though less commonly. And of course, a lot of times veterinarians aren't really tuned into that. They're not thinking about that at the point where a dog is presenting with vomiting or inappetence or that sort of thing. Other signs that might be there as well are weight loss if it's been going on for a while. And then, of course, the icterus and PUPD sorts of signs. So it's interesting. It seems like the face or the clinical picture of leptospirosis has changed more to acute kidney injury instead of that classic icteric, what we call ADR dog. And I often feel like I worry for all the acute kidney injury cases that I see, most veterinarians may not instantly think of leptospirosis. They may think of nephrotoxicants, you know, like grapes and raisins and lilies and cats or ethylene glycol. But oftentimes I feel like they may be 
underestimating the significance of leptospirosis sclerosis with that AKI or acute kidney injury patient. I agree with that. I think that any time that a patient who is lethargic and vomiting just isn't doing well comes back with elevated BUN and creatinine, some electrolyte disturbances possibly, uh, maybe even some thrombocytopenia, that should trigger uh, thoughts of leptospirosis. Now, it's not necessarily leptospirosis, but it should definitely be on the differential list. I do agree that the picture with the kidney issues is a more common presentation now than the icterus and, and liver issues. Yeah, I agree. So again, veterinarians, if you're listening to this, if you have that acute kidney injury patient, again, leptospirosis should be on your top differential. I would say, based on the ACBM consensus statement, 70 to 80% of our canine leptospirosis cases are just AKI. They're not actually showing hepatopathy. So I thought that was really interesting. Now, in terms of staff diagnosing leptospirosis, what do you think is the best test used for diagnosing leptospirosis? And do you mind just walking us through the few different tests that are out there right now? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the gold standard is considered the MAT, the microscopic agglutination test. And that's a test that is a serology test. It has to be sent to the laboratory. And they're looking for agglutination that indicates that there are antibodies present. The way that that test is run, it's done when the patient first presents but then it has to be repeated two weeks later, and you're looking for a fourfold rise in titer for that test. So you may have an indication initially if the titer is elevated, but it's not a confirmed diagnosis till you have that second test. So that makes it a little bit tricky, and it does take time to get those results back. There is a PCR test as well. That test is much faster. It also has to be sent to the laboratory. And uh, that one, if you get a positive back, it is a positive. So um, because, of course, they're looking for DNA fragments from the organism itself. There are also some in-house tests now that can be run. And there are a couple different ones. One of them relies on IgM. And so that will pick up the test earlier in the course of the disease. And there are other tests that do may pick up IgM, but are more specific for IgG antibodies. And so that takes longer for that to show up. And so a patient who maybe has been sick for longer, that would be a, a better test. But I actually prefer the IgM test. I do think it's really important that veterinarians be aware. I forget the exact statistic on it. I think it was almost 40%, but a lot of times that first MAT test is negative. And it's not until they recheck for that convalescent titer two to four weeks later that we actually confirm the diagnosis, which reiterates the importance of having owners come back to make sure that we are diagnosing this correctly. We don't want to miss that diagnosis. I also think the hard thing is I love the PCR because of its accuracy, but I think a lot of veterinary professionals forget one or two doses of antibiotics will skew that PCR, so it'll make it negative. And again, that's one of the reasons why we're taught in vet school, get pre-treatment blood work. And so ideally, hold that urine, hold that serum. If in the event that, you know, two days later, you're like, oh, I wonder if this guy's a lepto. And again, that way we can do the test if we need to. But again, one or two doses will skew that PCR. And again, it's that's probably my favorite test, but it is something where it is frustrating because we, we do want to make sure we're testing in the right window. Otherwise, great to know that we have multiple options for, 
for diagnosing and testing for leptospirosis. Yes, the PCR is very dependent on not having had antibiotics given ahead of time because that, as you said, that may create a false negative. Now, how do we protect our staff? A lot of times, you know, when we're examining dogs, we don't commonly wear gloves and it's not until we get the blood work or, you know, a snap test back a few minutes later, or a few hours later, we're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm worried this dog is a lepto. I may have exposed myself. How do we protect our staff from contracting leptospirosis in an unvaccinated dog or a dog that we think may actually be clinically ill from leptospirosis? It's definitely a concern because there are many times when you have a patient come in and you start the exam before you even have any idea of what's happening or your technician has taken a temperature uh, reading or something like that. So one of the things that I think is important is because these organisms actually penetrate through abrasions. So anybody who does have a cut or abrasion on their hand um, should be using gloves definitely when they're looking at patients and touching patients. If there are any contact with urine, then there can be potential exposure and certainly wash hands and dry them really well right away. But maybe also consult with a physician to see whether prophylactic course of antibiotics is warranted at that point, especially if there is confirmed diagnosis of leptospirosis. You know, it's so interesting about a year ago, I was pregnant and there was potential exposure to a patient with leptospirosis. And of course, I called my physician and they're like, oh, we don't know what lepto is, but we'll call you back. I was like, what? <laughs> so it was a little scary. <laughs> so yes, when in doubt, be, be a good advocate for yourself. That's right. And sometimes we do know more about it than the physician does. So it pays to kind of walk through and, and discuss it so that they're, they understand what the issues are. They may not be picturing exactly what's happening in the clinic. And so it, it is important to lay out all the reasons that you think that you may be exposed and what that might mean. I agree. Now, in terms of our patients that may have acute kidney injury, thankfully, I feel like clinically, I oftentimes catch these guys in the polyuric stage. Um, when they do become oliguric, so they're making 0.5 to 1 mil per kg per hour of urine, or hopefully not anuric, where they're making less than 0.5 mils per kg per hour of urine, I oftentimes will put a urinary catheter in just so I can monitor urine output. But I don't always do that for the polyuric patients. What is the general recommendation if we do have a dog that we suspect has leptospirosis, should we automatically always be putting urinary catheters in? And then how do we dispose of the urine or what do we do to prevent any kind of zoonotic risk to our staff? Handling the urine is definitely a concern. You want to make sure that you do have protective clothing if you are handling any of that urine, even from the catheter set and all that sort of thing. Once you've disposed of that urine, though, I mean, there's no need to have any special disinfectants. Any kind of disinfectant will really take care of it. Once the area is dry, then there's no further risk for exposure at that point. But it is important to remember that obviously the leptospires are excreted in urine and urine is definitely a potential exposure that should be guarded against. Now, in terms of shedding to our staff or shedding to pet owners, oftentimes I feel like my acute kidney injury, canine leptospirosis patients are hospitalized on average for three to four days. When we start them on antibiotic therapy, or I should say appropriate antibiotic therapy, does it minimize the risk of 
shedding of leptospirosis to the pet owner? Or how worried should we be? What should our spiel be to the pet owner uh, that we have a high index of suspicion that their dog has leptospirosis? So in the cases where there is a confirmed diagnosis, then Yes, education of the owner is very important because shedding can continue for months afterwards, even if they have taken the full course of antibiotics. So it's important that they be aware of that, that they are making sure that they are taking their pet to urinate in areas where it can be either washed down or where they're not going to come in contact with it afterwards. So for example, they're urinating out in the yard and then an owner is out there gardening, they potentially could be exposed that way. So it's important to educate them about that as well. And uh, certainly when you don't know the diagnosis, it's also worth educating the client and letting them know what the potential uh, hazards are. Now, what about the regions of the United States or North America where we see leptospirosis? I know, you know, classically they say it's wetter areas like the Midwest, the Southeast. We see it a lot in Minnesota, especially in the fall because of all the flooding from the Mississippi. But is there a certain area or a certain population of dogs that you generally recommend vaccinating because of the zoonotic risk? First of all, as far as vaccination, I think that any uh, dogs that are in areas that are prone to leptospirosis should be vaccinated. I know it's not considered a core vaccine, but you know, in areas where leptospirosis occurs, I think that all dogs are at risk. And so there may be dogs that should not get vaccinated because of other considerations, but most dogs, in my opinion, should be vaccinated. As far as areas of the country, there are actually quite a few areas of the country where leptospirosis is pretty prevalent. The entire West Coast, all the way from the Pacific Northwest into down into California. Texas is an area that has had quite a bit of leptospirosis. Colorado is another area, as you mentioned, the upper Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, uh, Minnesota, all of those areas. And then all the way from New England down to the mid-Atlantic are also areas where leptospirosis is fairly common and is definitely diagnosed. There may be areas of the country where it's not as common. Certainly, I would say in the Rocky Mountain area, that sort of thing, they're you know, not as quite as much, but there are still cases diagnosed there as well. It's so interesting. I have a critical care specialist who's a colleague who practices in the Phoenix area. And I always think of that four corners area being super dry. And when we were chatting one day, she said there was a lepto outbreak. And I was like, really? It's so dry out there. And she said, it's because of America's love for lawns. And because people were watering their lawns so much, so mice and rats would go as a water source to those areas. So I, I thought it was really interesting that it can really be seen anywhere. That's very true, I think. Um, and actually, one of the changing demographics of this is because of the interface between urban and rural boundaries are expanding so that more people are coming into contact with wildlife and more animals are coming into contact with wildlife and wildlife is encroaching into those areas, as you just mentioned. And that sets up a scenario where there is more exposure to leptospirosis. It's actually interesting. I can't even remember the last big dog that I saw with leptospirosis. You know, and again, 20 years ago, I was taught it was the roaming rural farm dog. And now it's, you know, the Twin Cities. I live downtown by the Mississippi dog that ends up seeming to be at higher risk. I know a 
paper out of Purdue by Lee and all found that it was smaller dogs, less than 15 pounds that were really at higher risk for leptospirosis. Why do you think that is? Well, there can be a couple of different reasons for that. First of all, I would say that I think all dogs are at risk. So traditionally, as you said, people were thinking about large dogs. You know, I also often hear, you know, hunting dogs, dogs on farms, that sort of thing. And so those dogs were roaming more and maybe coming in more contact with wildlife traditionally. But now that's not happening. The wildlife is actually coming to us, coming to our dogs. And so I think all dogs are at risk. The larger dogs may be vaccinated more commonly. In fact, in practice, like you said, 20 years ago, those were the recommendations. You know, only larger dogs were getting vaccinated. Only dogs that went out camping or hunting were getting vaccinated. And so I think that the smaller dogs were getting overlooked in terms of their potential exposure and their potential risk. It's also funny because most small dog owners, when I say, oh, is your dog exposed to, you know, puddles or does he swim in the Mississippi or is there any exposure to mouse or rat urine? Their instinct is always, of course not, but they end up testing positive for lepto. So, you know, we, yeah, we forget that, you know, rats urinate on cement and it stays in that area. So again, um, definitely exposure in our smaller populations that we sometimes forget about. Definitely. And I think also owners are very unaware of what their pets actually are exposed to. So in the research that I did, there were over half of the dogs who had been diagnosed with leptospirosis had no reported exposure risk. So owner was not aware of any risks that their dogs had faced in the last couple of weeks before they were diagnosed. So as a public health veterinarian, does the zoonotic nature of leptospirosis make you more likely to vaccinate all dogs? And uh, as a follow-up, how do I convince my clients that the leptospirosis vaccine is necessary just because a lot of people think, oh, you know, Fluffy's feet never touch cement, so it's not an issue. Like I said earlier, I really believe in the leptospirosis vaccine. I mean, prevention is so much better than having a dog who's really ill and, you know, in the emergency hospital because they're having acute kidney issues or whatever other issues and a lot less expensive as well. So I think making owners aware of not just of the disease, but of how serious it can be and how potentially life-threatening it can be for their pets can make a difference in terms of convincing them. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is that a lot of owners, especially of small dogs, don't want their dogs vaccinated because they're afraid of vaccine reaction. And of course, vaccine reaction is a reality. It's a possibility. But the leptospirosis vaccine has not been shown to cause more reactions than other vaccines do. So that's an argument. Well, you know, we wouldn't be vaccinating for rabies either. And we certainly do vaccinate pretty much everybody for rabies. You know, so I don't think that that's a great argument for not vaccinating small dogs. Yeah, I agree. When you actually look at the data of adverse events, it's minimal. And I think the hard thing is, you know, it it had to be a hot vaccine or a very proteinaceous vaccine to stimulate the immune system. I know it's been ultra purified. And so the risk of vaccine reactions is so low now. And honestly, I oftentimes question, is this one of the reasons why we're seeing it in small dogs more? Because for the past 10 years, people have not been vaccinating small dogs. So I wonder if it's a more exposed patient population that the breeders said they couldn't get vaccinated or whatever. So I think it's really important that we educate small dog owners about this because they're still at high risk for it if their feet touch cement. 
So again, it's urban dogs, smaller dogs that we worry about more. Now, do vaccines mask renal shedding of leptospires? They should, no. Vaccines do not mask the shedding of the leptospires. They can interfere if if you're doing an MAT test and the dog was vaccinated with a vaccine, that can definitely uh, interfere with at least the initial test where you're looking for that elevated titer because the vaccine can cause an elevated titer. Now, the vaccine is not going to cause a fourfold rise in that second test. So that can sort out whether it's actually a vaccine issue or true leptospirosis. But of course, if you're doing PCR tests, then the vaccine is not going to interfere at all. Wonderful, fantastic information. Again, really important that we as veterinary professionals realize it's not that classic icteric azotemic farm dog that's roaming. It is more acute kidney injury nowadays. It's a smaller dog, often around 15 pounds or less that we're seeing in urban environments. And again, really important because, you know, based off the ACVM consensus statement, the prognosis is fair to good. It's 80% survive. But the frustrating thing is when we see that initial acute kidney injury insult, I always warn those owners Now their dog is predisposed to chronic renal disease, potentially for the rest of their life. And again, this is a potentially preventable disease. So again, really important that we educate pet owners with that. Dr. Grazel, thank you so much for all this fantastic information and really appreciate you taking the time to do today's Vet Girl podcast. You're welcome. I was glad to be able to talk with you.